we have been uh, trying to provide a little bit more depth about the uh, Svetantrika tenet system and uh, we're doing that by going through some of the key terms that are used to uh, describe different ways of establishing the existence of something or different ways of knowing things and looking at the development of uh, the interpretation and use of these terms in the tenet systems leading up to Svetantrika and including Svetantrika so that we get a better understanding of these terms. We have looked at substantial, substantially established existence and existence established exclusively by being something imputed by conceptual cognition. And we saw that uh, substantially established existence is something that uh, produces an effect or uh, produces a uh, result, something that performs a function. Ibashika considered that to be both static and non-static phenomenon because they uh, provided the uh, focus for the cognition of them, so that included static phenomenon, but uh, everybody else, meaning here in our context, the Sautrantika, Chittamatra, and Svatantrikas, assert that uh, substantially established existence is limited just to non-static phenomenon. And existence established exclusively by being something imputed by conceptual cognition, Avashka said nothing was like that. And uh, the Sautrantika asserted that uh, metaphysical entities are like that, so this is static phenomenon. And uh, um, Chittamatra agreed with that, but uh, Svetantrika objected to uh, this terminate being uh, exclusively or only, and they say that uh, there isn't anything that is uh, has its existence established exclusively by being something imputed by conceptual cognition because static phenomenon have to uh, have uh, such as categories have to have something on the side of the uh, basis for imputation for them as well. Now that was what we covered. And now what uh, we want to look at are uh, two further very important terms. And these are self-sufficiently knowable substantial existence and imputedly knowable existence. Substantially, self-sufficiently knowable substantial existence. That's not the same as substantially established existence. This is the type of thing that was uh, refuted in terms of the self, that it had self-sufficiently knowable substantial existence. Often we had abbreviated that to self-sufficiently knowable existence for uh, the self. But actually, the full term is self-sufficiently knowable substantial existence. So it's a substantially established phenomenon that is self-sufficiently knowable. And then there are imputedly knowable objects or that have imputedly knowable existence. So these terms don't correspond exactly to uh, 
substantially established existence and existence established exclusively as something imputed by conceptual cognition. And that's an important distinction to uh, understand. Self-sufficiently knowable, substantially existent phenomenon are those validly knowable, substantially exist established phenomenon that, when actually cognized, do not rely on actual cognition of something else, which means something else prior to it, before it. So it doesn't to know this type of uh, substantially existent phenomenon or non-static phenomenon. You don't have to rely on knowing or cognizing something else immediately before it. Whereas imputedly knowable phenomenon are those validly knowable phenomenon that when actually cognized do rely on actual cognition of something else, meaning something else prior to them. Self-sufficiently knowable substantially existent phenomenon, I'm sorry, it's a mouthful, don't include all substantially established phenomenon. It only includes um, well, we'll get to what it only includes in terms of uh, the uh, different tenant systems because they have different assertions of it. First, Vibhashika. Vibhashika asserts, as we know, direct cognition of something, that uh, there's no mental hologram, that just uh, the uh, um, sensor, the cognitive sensor makes contact with the object itself. Because of that, then uh, it doesn't accept that there is anything that is uh, imputedly, knowably existent. That uh, everything can just be known without relying on knowing something else before it. The texts aren't uh, uh, explicit about that in terms of Vibhashiva, but most of my, I mean, my teachers have said, you know, undoubtedly they don't assert anything as falling in that category. So anyway, then we come to Sautrantika. This is uh, the uh, initial main uh, place where we have uh, this established. And so remember, we had substantially established existent phenomenon. That was everything that was non-static. And of those, only forms of physical phenomenon and ways of being knowing, of knowing have self-sufficiently knowable substantial existence. Whereas uh, when we talk about um, imputedly knowable existence, you have to cognize something be immediately before cognizing it. That refers to both uh, static phenomenon. You have to know something immediately before uh, cognizing them. and non-congruent affecting variables, so things like persons. Remember, our big focus was on uh, persons. So static phenomenon don't have substantially established existence, whereas persons like non-congruent affecting variables do have self-established existence. So these things are not pervading, you know, these two classification systems are not pervasive with each other. So self-sufficiently knowable substantially established phenomenon don't include all substantially established uh, phenomenon and imputedly 
knowable phenomenon includes some substantially established ones and some that are um, <laughs> have their existence exclusively as something imputed by conceptual cognition. It's difficult to say all of this because the terms are so long. Mm -hmm. But anyway, try it. <laughs> um, what's important here, before we actually start to uh, work with this, is to realize uh, that the subtle selflessness of self, or lack of a true identity of a self asserted, first asserted in Sautrantika, and it uh, is asserted in Chittamatra and in Svetantrika as well, is the uh, non-implicative negation phenomenon, so no such thing, as a self-sufficiently knowable, substantially existent person. So what is the object being negated? Is the entire expression a self-sufficiently knowable, substantially existent person? The fact that a person has substantially established existence as a non-static phenomenon is not being negated. Remember, self-sufficiently, I'm sorry, substantially established existence is also, um, if something is, has substantially established existence, it has existence established from its own side. And it also has existence established by a self-nature or self-established existence, sometimes called inherent existence. I mean, there are other things as well that have that. Nevertheless, um, by stating that uh, you know what is being negated here is a self-sufficiently noble, substantially existent person, all as the whole phrase, the whole thing. All that really is being uh, um, negated is uh, what kind of substantially existent person is it? It's one that is self-sufficiently uh, knowable. So it's not negating that it's substantially existent. It's not negating that uh, it has existence established from its own side or that it has self-established existence. Remember, self-established existence or existence established by a self-nature is... Uh, refers to uh, in the imputation of something by conceptual cognition that uh, there's something findable holding up the basis you know for um, the basis of the imputation a referent thing in other words uh, that there is actually something over there on the side that is uh, being labeled, findable, established from its own side, something is there. So this is a self-established existence. So that's not being negated. That's why in Prasangika, this uh, self-sufficiently knowable, substantially existent person is the course. Um, selflessness of persons. The subtle one is that you have to negate that it has self-established existence. So then it becomes an interesting question. Why is it that in all the other systems, 
you have the coarse selflessness of a person being the reputation that the person is static as partless and can exist independently of the aggregates why is that not mentioned in prasangika mind you we're jumping ahead to prasangika here but uh, i think it's noteworthy you know to uh, bring that in at this point and uh, if you analyze then if you have refuted that uh, um, the self or person is self-sufficiently knowable you know, mind you, they're going to refute, Prasangika will refute that it's substantially established uh, as the subtle uh, selflessness of a person. But if you've refuted that it's self-sufficiently knowable, uh, then you have, in fact, and you understand the difference between self-sufficiently knowable and imputedly knowable, then, in fact, you have refuted that the self is static, partless, and can exist independently. Can you tell me why? Can you repeat? <laughs> if a self-sufficiently knowable phenomenon can be known by itself without having to know anything before it, immediately prior to it. So if you have refuted that the self is self-sufficiently knowable. How have you refuted in doing that, that the self is static, partless, and can exist independently? I thought the definition of self-sufficiently knowable was, were those three things. No, self-sufficiently knowable was the opposite of these three things. No, I'm sorry. The self-sufficiently knowable. Take that back. If something, static phenomenon, are not self-sufficiently knowable. If we understand the difference between self-sufficiently knowable and imputedly knowable. Mm -hmm. Static phenomenon, you have to know the basis of imputation of it first. Mm -hmm. First you see an apple and then you can fit it into the category of apples. So if the self were self-sufficiently knowable, you wouldn't have to know anything before. You wouldn't, it, it couldn't be a static phenomenon. If it were a static phenomenon, you'd have to know something before it. That doesn't make sense. Let's let's think about that. Something like space, for example, you, you wouldn't have something before space. Would you? Yeah, you'd have to have the space. Space is talking about something that, what, uh, the fact that something is uh, um, there's nothing obstructive or tangible preventing the thing from occupying three dimensions. You'd have to know the thing first. No. It's if 
the self is self-sufficiently if the so I take that back what I said before the self can't be static because what's being refuted here is that it is substantially self-sufficiently knowable substantially existent so it's not a substantially existent phenomenon because it's static I mean if it were mm-hmm. I'm confused It can't be. Now, now we have to think. I had thought I had figured it out, but I didn't. I feel like it would be easier to understand with a board, where you could like. With a board, it would be easier. <laughs> the different sections. With a board, it would be easier. Um, no, they ref- they refute the static one. I mean, the static, the self. If, if something is not self-sufficiently, if something is self-sufficiently noble, it must be static. No, if something is self-sufficiently knowable, it must be imputedly existent, like a. So that doesn't refute it. Mm. This is good. We have to work it out. If it's substantially existent. Yeah. It can't be. Static. So the self. The self can't be self-sufficient. If the self can. Were were self-sufficiently knowable, substantially existent. It couldn't be static. So if we refute that it's substantially existent, and we refute we've that refuted, we refuted that it's static. No, we refuted that it is not. St- <laughs> no, we refuted that it's non-static. Happen okay. what? Again. Again, this is where you have to really be good at debating. (laughs) The self, you want to refute that there is such a thing as a static self. Static phenomenon are not self-sufficiently knowable, and static phenomenon are not substantially existent. So if we have refuted that the self is static. Now if we have refuted that the self is self-sufficiently knowable, substantially existent, the self could still be static. We haven't refuted that it's static because static phenomenon are imputedly knowable and they are not substantially existent. Now we have it right. Right? So just because we have refuted that it is self 
sufficiently knowable, substantially existent, we have not refuted that it's static. So we have to go to the next parts, the next uh, qualities, that it's partless. Just to make it a bit more concrete, uh, are they the ones who say that the only static phenomena are categories? No, the Sartranticos say that uh, the only static categories are, well, no, there are categories, the only static, the static phenomena include categories, space, and selflessness itself. Okay. These are static. What about uh, partless? If it is knowable by direct perception, uh, not imputable. If it is knowable uh, by not imputing, right. it must have parts because then you see a front part or a. I don't know what to say. It, just, it has to have parts. Well, it says that you would not have to, for it to be self-sufficiently knowable, you don't have to cognize anything before it. If something has parts, a whole has parts, you don't have to cognize the parts first in order to, to cognize the whole. I don't have to see first the fingers and then then I see it's a hand. We see the fingers and hands at the same time. In which school? Right? Which school? Pardon? Which school are we now? All of, we're talking South China today. Okay. So All of them would agree. Mm-hmm. All the schools would agree. That you don't have to see the parts first in order to see the whole. If we're talking about forms of physical phenomenon or ways of being aware of something. But a person is not a form of uh, physical phenomenon or a way of being aware of something. It's a non-congruent affecting variable. For that, you have to know something before in order to know it. To know motion, you have to see an object in one place and then in another place. Then you can have motion. You can know motion. So you have to know first an object in one place and then when you see an object in a little place after that, past that, then you can know motion. So the same thing with person, that first we cognize some basis and then a person. You see a body and then you see that it's a person. It is, it is only true for non-congruent affecting variables. It's not true right. for uh, other... Uh, 
It's not true for a form of physical phenomenon like my hand or uh, a, uh, a cognition is made up of the ways of knowing, ways of being aware of something in a cognition. You have primary consciousness and you have a whole bunch of mental factors. You don't have to know just one or two of them and then you have to know the cognition. You know the whole thing. Mind you, in Sautrantika we're talking about reflexive awareness that's aware of the mm. cognitive uh, content of the cognition. We know it all together. So when we have refuted that it's the type of substantially okay, now figure it out. If you've refuted that it's the type of it's a substantially established phenomenon that they agree, the self. And it's one that is, and it's not one that is partless. So it has parts. So if you refute that it has, that it doesn't have parts, it has parts. has parts it's non-static so we haven't you know it still could be a form of physical phenomenon a way of being aware of something couldn't it no we've refuted what have we refuted? Come on, think. It has parts, not static. What's the it has, it's static. It is static. We have, no, we have refute, we want to refute that it's static and that it doesn't have parts. Because the subtle selflessness is the refutation of a, the coarse one is a refutation of a, a self that is static, is partless, and can exist independently. Take a hand. The hand is substantially established, right? Because it uh, is non-static, it performs functions. The hand is not static. It uh, is not partless. It has parts. And can the hand exist independently of its parts? No.
So what do we have here? We have a But a hand is self-sufficiently knowable. Because you don't have to know something before it. Well, don't you have to see the parts of the hand to know that... To you would see the... You, won't, you don't have to see... You can't see the parts of a hand separately from seeing a hand. Can you? Can you? If I, if I saw my hand just this little part, I wouldn't know that it's... That a it's a hand. hand. Well, if you just saw a piece of skin... You wouldn't know. But just seeing the piece of skin and then still seeing the piece of skin and seeing that it's a hand, would you know it's a hand? Would you see the hand? I would only know it's a hand if I see the parts, not just seeing one. Would you have to see the parts? How many parts? I mean, this becomes a difficult question. How many parts of something do you have to see in order to see the thing? in order to know that you're seeing the whole thing. I mean, that it is the whole thing. A room, you certainly don't see all the parts of a room. We don't see the wall behind us. I imagine that would vary from person to And a person, you certainly don't see all their aggregates or know all their aggregates. You don't even know the whole form aggregate. You don't see what's inside their body or what's, you know, their back when you're looking in the front. Maybe a hand scientist would look at this skin and he would know that it's a hand. But if I see in the microscope, I don't know. Well, how, sm how, mu how much of it, though, do you have to see? If you see one finger, it's a finger of a hand. Yeah, but as you say, you spend all day looking at this kind of skin cells. Then you know. Then you may know that you can distinguish it. Because you're so familiar with that aspect. Like I have these things in my hand from going to the gym. Callus. The callus. If I saw just this, I would know it's my hand. But if mm -hmm. I showed to you, you, you would know. No, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know. It could also be cut off. Oh. Yes. It's part, it could be a part of the hand, but yeah. you wouldn't know that it's a hand. But from my hand. From my hand I would know, because I, I look at it. <laughs> <laughs> when you see a nail, can you tell that it's a toe, a fingernail, or a toenail? I don't, but maybe the people <laughs> who do the nails do. But it's more a conclusion, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's a conclusion. We draw, we infer. You infer that it is, so it's conceptual. Yeah. Did you know about this? The whole discussion reminds me of all the time. How what? computer vision is, is how the mm. machine learning and artificial intelligence experts are trying to develop computer vision. And they ask this question all the time. What is, how does human vision work and how can you make something that is as good as human vision? Mm. And it's definitely still not as good as human vision. Can so be misled in many ways. But uh, it's good enough at recognizing many objects. So, we still haven't solved our problem. Why does Prasangika not include, of course, selflessness of a person as an object to be refuted that the other tennis systems do? And if you have refuted that a self is self-sufficiently knowable, substantially existent, have you actually refuted that it is static, partless, and can exist independently?
the issue of can it exist independently means you know can it exist independently of its basis for imputation which would be like would be parts it's a very difficult question I thought I had figured it out but obviously I didn't and it's very good that we are discussing it so we're now actually in Pasangik we're not looking at well no I mean we are talking about an issue which is uh um, a point of controversy that the Prasangika brings up. However, it arises in Sautrantika, so we need to analyze it within Sautrantika of would by why would Sautrantika, Chittamatra, and Svatantrika differentiate these two types of uh, selflessness? And that if you've understood the first, you haven't understood the second. And Prasangika says, does Prasangika say yes, or does Prasangika just assume that you have refuted it? That's an interesting question. From the what we have demonstrated in our little analysis is that if you have refuted that a self is static, you haven't refuted that it is self-sufficiently knowable. Right? If you have refuted that it is, and you haven't refuted that it is substantially existent, and if you've refuted that it is partless, you still haven't refuted that it's self-sufficiently knowable because a whole form of physical phenomenon and its parts, you don't have to know the parts before. Although we've been debating on how many parts do you have to, you know, would you have to know before? But the assertion is that you don't have to know them before. because a whole is self-sufficiently knowable. According to the assertion, and if we have refuted that the self is independently existent, well, something that is self-sufficiently knowable could it be known independently well independently of knowing the basis before but not independently of knowing the basis simultaneously with it because the whole has to be seen together with the parts this was what uh, the uh, Vaibhashika wouldn't accept. They said, you can see the whole, you can see a person, you don't have to see the parts because you can't see all the parts. That was a big issue with Vaibhashika. 
why they said the self was uh, why they wouldn't refute that the self is self-sufficiently knowable. They said it is self-sufficiently knowable because you don't have to see all the parts. You can't see all the parts. So what does that imply? That implies when you see, well, but we already established, if you just see a few cells of skin from the hand, that's not a sufficient amount of parts. And it would be hard to say what is the limit of the amount of parts that you would need to know, isn't it? See, this is the Dharma work of analysis to try to figure it out. That there are a lot of contradictions here. For Prasankhya, the, the idea of dependently arising comes before or after this discussion, this analysis? Everybody accepts dependent arising, including Vaibhashikas. You have the 12 links of dependent arising, everybody accepts that that uh, effects arise from causes. It's one of the most fundamental assertions of Buddhism is dependent arising. The question is how extensively do you apply it? Mm. I, have, I have a question. Um, maybe you, you are arguing that negating these three will lead to the prasangika view of understanding of voidness, right? But no, no, that's not the point. My, my question is, maybe if you apply the Prasangika view, that it's merely by designation of words and concepts that we establish yeah. something, then, you know, everything in, in the realm of, of course existence is dependent by definition. You know, in the Prasangika system, everything is dependent on the name that you give. Right. And partless is in that system, it doesn't yeah. have any function. I mean, it doesn't say anything about the, the way of existing anymore because they have lost part or partners in their system. Mm -hmm. It's all gone with having established that everything is interdependent and, 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 and um, dependently knowable only. So that it seems it doesn't, to me, it doesn't make any sense to argue parts mm -hmm. anymore in the prosecutor system because they have left that behind. It seems that's why they leave the course mm. behind, because they say it doesn't matter at all. If you have to view that it's only by designation, then you are left with only one of these these three principles. Right. And what you're saying is that if you have understood the Prasangika position of uh, everything is uh, just uh, uh, established merely as something imputed by conceptual cognition, with the understanding of what that means, doesn't mean that it's created by conceptual cognition, then uh, you've understood, you've refuted already, you know, the uh, lesser views of uh, selflessness of a person. That is true, however, you start with the coarse selflessness of a person, before going to the uh, 
the uh, subtle selflessness. If you have refuted the coarse selflessness of a person, then according to the prasangika view, you get rid of coarse disturbing emotions, but you would still have subtle disturbing emotions. So there is that stage. So then what I was saying is, what you say is correct. If you refute, you know, the full, the full refutation of uh, self-established existence, you've refuted everything, you know, the lower views. But the question is, at that level where you just understand the core selflessness, why, how have you understood the core selflessness in Prasangika, which is the subtle, have you necessarily understood the refutation of the coarse selflessness of a person as asserted in the lower schools? And that's hard to say. That's hard to say. That's what we're trying to figure out. So we started, you know, the other way around. If you have understood, you know, the self, if the self is something that is, it's not, it's non-static, it has parts, and it can't be known separately from its parts. I mean, it can't exist separately from its parts. Not that it can't be known. It can't exist separately from its parts. Then it still could be self-sufficiently knowable, substantially existent. So that's why you would have to refute that it is a self, that it is a self-sufficiently knowable, substantially existent phenomenon. On top of that, so if you've understood the coarse selflessness in these lower schools, you haven't necessarily understood it, the subtle selflessness. So if you have understood the subtle selflessness, have you understood of course, does it work the other way around? Can we ask someone who understood it? Pardon? Mm-hmm. Can we ask someone who understood it? <laughs> Can we ask somebody who is... Who understood it? Who understood it? Well, yes, that's... <laughs> <laughs> is there a hotline? If were... If there were an object that is partless, I have no idea what that would be. Maybe well, Vaibhashka asserts partless uh, particles. Partless particles. So, so from the Prasangika... And actually, I, I may be mistaken, but I think that uh, Sautrantika also asserts that, that it's only when we get to Chittamatra that they... Uh, I think so. In my... Yeah, that they uh, refute that. So if Prasangika would deal with a partless um, object? Or, or yeah, well, that's, they, 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 they say there are no such things. Yeah, and they say that there are no such things as substantially existent phenomenon, because that's, mm-hmm. you know, if it's substantially existent, it's, something's on its own side that's establishing it. Mm-hmm. So they've refuted everything, the prasangika. But in the 
general evolution. You start first, you know, you don't have that deepest understanding. No, but, but your question was why would Prasangika not have the, the course, the three cores? Uh, the core selflessness of the others, that's our question. But isn't that the answer? That because they, they don't need that anymore, they don't have any, they don't need that, as, or they, it doesn't come up in their philosophical system anymore. And just to ask the question that you are asking us now, we can only understand the question that you're asking now because we understood why the course can be refuted. Otherwise, even this question would not make sense to us. So the person only can make this question when they went through the whole thing. Mm. You can only try to refute the subtle after you already refuted the course one. Otherwise, you don't even make this question. Okay, so that's, that's an interesting point. You could only start to refute the subtle selflessness of the lower system if you have refuted already the course of the lower systems, is what you're saying. In other words, what we want to refute is a non-static possessing parts dependently existent substantially existent phenomenon that can be known by itself we want to refute that this, the person is like that If you have refuted that a non-static having parts dependently existent person is self-sufficiently knowable, have you also refuted that a static partless independently existing self is self is self-sufficiently knowable <laughs> maybe not necessarily but it's Pardon? implied if you have if you have refuted that a self lacking these three qualities can be self-sufficiently known have you refuted that a self having these three qualities can be self-sufficiently known? Not necessarily. Pardon? I think not necessarily, but it's implied that you already did. This is why you can. You have arrived at the, at the point where you can ask the, this question at this refined level. Otherwise, you wouldn't be at that point if you had not. So that from, so yeah. what you're saying is that in order to actually approach the prasangika view, you have to have studied the lower tenets. That's what it wouldn't mean if, it's, if I'm right. Yeah. Which is the way that the Tibetans approach it. So the conclusion would be that without... It's danger. Yeah. The danger yeah. would be to jump just straight to Prasangika. Mm -hmm. 
I yeah, like I even now I don't understand exactly the question that Prasangika's asked and you were you are asking us. And if I didn't other, and didn't study with you the previous tenant tenant systems, it would be even far from even more far from me to understand the question. Mm -hmm. I'm starting to understand the question only because we studied this so far. Right. Uh, maybe I'm, I'm sorry, but maybe you are asking two different questions. In the beginning, maybe I'm a bit procedural here, but in the beginning, I think you asked the question why it is interesting that Prasangika doesn't make use of refueling the course self or something like that. Right. And now you, you, you ask the question how can we um, refute these three types of existence and, and arrive at the view of Prasangika? You know, you ask the question from top to bottom. Well, no, I don't think that I was doing that. I don't think that was... No, I mean, the first question was why in Prasangika is it sufficient to refute the self-sufficiently knowable substantially existent self without first refuting a self that is static, partless, and can exist independently? That was the first question. And now, what you were saying, what I'm, the second question is coming up, is what? Did you ask why? How can we refute um, that an object has these three aspects of being partless, unchanging, and independent? And, and that I find is no. How can we refute that we have done for many years? Right, that we've done. We have refuted that that. Well, what I was saying was that if you have refuted that the self is static, partless, and independently existent, you have not refuted that it is self-sufficiently knowable. Mm -hmm. Because you could refute that the hand is static, partless, and can exist independently of its, of its parts. And still, the hand could be self-sufficiently know is self-sufficiently knowable. So, so that's why you have the coarse and the subtle selflessness in the lower systems. In prasangika, no, in the lower systems, prasangika doesn't doesn't consider that the self, you know. If you have so if you have so what is being refuted then with the coarse selflessness in Prasangika, I mean with the subtle selflessness in the non-prasangika, is that a non-static, non-partless non-independent self is self-sufficiently knowable. So it's correct that you have what you said, Andreas, that you have, in, and, and you, or Hauni, that you have in fact already accepted that the self is non-static, has parts, and is uh, not independent. 
because that's what's being refuted. So you're not refuting that a static, partless, independently existing self is self-sufficiently knowable. That, I think, is the solution to our, to our debate. You haven't correctly identified the object to be refuted. The basis, not the object to be refuted, the basis of the refutation. The basis of the refutation here is a substantially existent self that is non-static, has parts, and can't exist by itself. That's the basis of the refutation. And now what you're refuting is that it is self-sufficiently knowable. And why have you accepted it? Because as, as Jorge points out, you have accepted that it's non-static and uh, has parts and uh, is dependent because you've studied that, you've refuted that by studying the earlier systems. I think that's the only solution. When I think about the difference between Agbaibashikasha Atlantica's view to the Sangika, yeah. I thought about like this metaphor with a cloud in the sky. The metaphor the of the cloud in the sky. Isn't it like the, this partress? So the crowds are not partress, not static, not independent. That's what we're discussing. Right. Isn't Prasangika saying, but not so much talking about crowds, but the Prasangika is saying that, that that's all happening in the sky. Like that's talking about not what is there, but rather Prasangika is talking more about not the appearances. But, how do you say? Prasangaka is not talking so much about the appearances. Uh, you know, how do you establish the appearance of something? That was what Chittamatra is talking about. You can only establish the appearance of something in relation to the mind. You can't establish it, you know, from the side externally before a mind cognizes it. That's Chittamatra. And that, once you have understood that you can only establish the appearance of something from the side of the mind, then that is a stepping stone for prasangika. You can only understand, you can only establish the existence of something from the side of the mind, namely from mental labeling, in terms of mental labeling. So yes, I mean, this is what prasangika is concerned with, is how do you only, how do you establish the existence of something. So Tantrika said that, uh, you know, you can establish the conventional existence of something because it appears. And you can establish, you can only establish the deepest in terms of mental labeling plus there's something that appears. But that 
Then Prasangika says, no, 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 because what appears is also self-established existence. We have to refute that as well. So what is happening is that in Prasangika then, we're taking as the basis for the refutation what we've established already from the lower schools, I guess. That it is the self is non-static, changes all the times, it has parts, it can't exist independently of its aggregates, and it's self and it is substantially existent. And the coarse selflessness is just going to refute that it's self-sufficiently knowable. And so then you have, you know, imputedly knowable, substantially existent, is what's left over, which is what the Svetantrikas would accept. So then you have to refute that it's substantially existent, which is the refutation of self-established existence. That's the Prasangika view. Do the lower ten systems do they are they concerned with the subtle <coughs> subtle refutation or only the coarse one? They have their own definition of of causal and of coarse and subtle. They're not concerned with the prasangika. They think the prasangika view, especially Svatantrika, thinks that the prasangika view that things are exclusive can be established exclusively uh, as you know what can be imputed by you know by conce- conceptual cognition as being nihilistic. That's the extreme of nihilism. They say there has to be something on the side of the object, otherwise you could label anything as anything. So this is basically it's very good that we've gone through the debate. So this is actually how we need to uh, study the Dharma. Maybe we'll stop here and uh, we'll continue this next week. So we end with the dedication. We think whatever understanding, whatever positive forces come from this may go deeper and deeper and act as a cause for everyone to achieve the enlightened state of the Buddha for the benefit of all. <laughs>